very excited to get to Hebrews 11 because it's a very popular chapter of Hebrews, that list of all the amazing he um, heroes of the faith. And um, I, just, I just want to begin by saying that we mustn't look at those heroes and think that we can't be heroes of the faith. You know, God assesses each one of us in terms of the faith that he's given us, in terms of the gifts that he's given us. And as we're going to learn today, every one of us can become a hero of the faith. Um, I was particularly inspired by my grandparents. I've been fortunate in that I've had this amazing example of my grandparents, my own heroes of the faith, and, and here they are here. That's Fred and Kathleen Ray. They came out to Rhodesia in 1937 as missionaries with the Methodist Church. And then on the 1st of September 1939, the Second World War started. And initially it didn't actually affect them, um, but then in 1941, Rhodesia was chosen to, to um, participate in something called the Commonwealth Air Training Scheme, which involved training um, pilots, RAF pilots, at Thornhill Air, Air Force Base in Guello. Uh, and that was just because the weather was ideal for training pilots. For most of the year around, it was just, it was just clear. And so my, my grandfather was... Um, appointed as a chaplain at Thornhill Air Force Base. And having gained experience as a chaplain, he was then transferred to the 6th South African Armoured Division, which was trained in South Africa. And there you can see him there. They were trained in South Africa and then in Egypt. And they went to war on the 23rd of May, 1945, and participated in the Italian campaign, which involved forcing the German occupiers out of Italy. And at the end of the war, Fred received a commendation. He was awarded a military MBE. Um, and there you can see the, the medal there. I found it recently when I was uh, clearing out my folks' cottage uh, for my mum. I'd just like to read um, his commendation to you. This is to show that whatever you happen to do, whatever you happen to be, whether you're a chaplain in the army, whether you're a soldier, whether you're a businessman, you can serve God in an amazing way. And so this is what it said. It said, Captain Ray received his MBE for inspiring devotion to duty, outstanding courage beyond the call of duty, and for his consistently magnificent example in disregard for personal safety. Throughout the campaign in Italy with the 6th South African Armored Division, Padre Ray was attached to the engineers and signal corps. And during this time, Padre Ray never spared himself the smallest effort. He visited the troops in the most inaccessible places, lived with them, worked, talked, and laughed with them. Whenever he heard of troops moving forward, he was there in his unassuming and reassuring way. If on arrival he found, as he often did, that the troops were going out to repair demolitions under cover of darkness, his normal request was to be given a shovel and to be allowed to join the working party. His ready smile and reassuring manner, together with his complete disregard for personal safety and discomfort, have been an inspiration and an example to all ranks and a factor in morale which is unsurpassed. Added to this, his practical work in attending men and preparing the dead for burial was done with such dignity and grace that even this became a source of inspiration for all present. And there you can see his, in the next slide, his campaign medals, the ones that were given to 
to every soldier that participated in those different campaigns. But that wasn't the only commendation that he received. In 1978, he was awarded an honorary Doctor of Laws degree by the University of Rhodesia for founding Alcoholics Anonymous in this country and for his work in Christian education. And I don't know about you, but I've often wondered what it's like to receive a commendation like that. You know, I think if we're honest, we long to be commended, don't we? Even if it's privately, let alone some of these commendations which come from King George VI as it happened uh, with Grandpa. But the significant thing about this, um, and the reason why I'm telling you all about it, is that it had a profound effect on me because when I was just 10 years old, I heard my grandfather being introduced to preach at Trinity Methodist Church in Dublin, which was his hometown. And he was introduced, much to my surprise, as doctor. And I was like, I didn't know Grandpa was a doctor. Frederick. And I was like, I thought he was Fred. <laughs> Beatty, which was his middle name. That was news to me. I couldn't believe that his middle name was Beatty Ray, MBE. And, and to this day, I can still remember just how uncomfortable the family felt um, because they knew that my grandpa, Fred, <laughs> would be squirming in his skin to be introduced in that way. And at the time, I, I was just I was wondering why, because I thought it would be wonderful to be <laughs> introduced like that. Maybe he was just simply shy, I was trying to work it out, or maybe there was another reason why um, he felt uncomfortable. And I began to find answers to these questions only when I heard what my grandfather said literally in the last five seconds of his life before he died. And we're going to come back to that. But let's just look at the background to today's passage. Last week, Trevor was talking to us about the true nature of Christianity. And he was saying that following Christ means that life will be harder than if we don't follow Christ. And despite all of that, despite the extra hardship that it attracts, we need to not throw away our confidence in Jesus, and we need to endure hardship. Why? Because we're promised a great reward. Do you remember that phrase from last week's passage that we read? The great reward. And now the writer starts to give us a hint as to what this great reward actually is. So notice... As you turn there to, um, to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Sounds like a dog scratching itself, doesn't it? Uh, Hebrews 11, chapter, chapter verse 1. Notice how many times the word commendation or a word similar to it is actually used. So I'm just going to read it. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then he starts talking about some of the heroes of the faith, some of the examples that he wants us to, to follow. And these examples also illustrate what he's talking about. By faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended 
as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Talking about him today. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is God's word. So we're going to look at what this reward is that God has for us if we will endure and hold on to our confidence. And the ultimate reward that he starts talking about is this present reward whilst we're alive of God's commendation. And then he's going to talk about the future reward of our inheritance in heaven, this heavenly city that we're looking forward to. And Trevor's going to be dealing with that next week. But this week, it's our present reward of God's commendation. We see that that's what he's talking about because the people of old, do you see it there, received a commendation from God. Abel was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, the gifts that he offered in his sacrifice. And Enoch was also commended as having pleased God. So the writer of Hebrews clearly views the commendation of God as a reward. And because he's putting that first, he sees it as an ultimate reward, a far more important reward than some of the rewards that we see coming later on in chapter 11. The commendation of God. And the kind of reward that he is referring to at the end of chapter 10. So that, in a sense, is like the steak on the plate that Treasure was talk. Uh, that Trevor, not Treasure, you are a Treasure, Trevor. <laughs> Gee, I managed to say that, Treasure, Trevor. Um, <laughs> God's reward is not the steak on the plate in this life, but it's commendation of God in this life. But what form does this commendation take? It comes in two forms, and the writer uses two examples to illustrate each of these commendations. Abel was commended as righteous. Enoch was commended as having pleased God. I wonder what life would be like if we knew that God commended us as being righteous and pleasing to him. So the reward of God is his commendation that we are righteous and pleasing. But are these rewards received in the present? Let's just answer that question. Notice that Abel, who is given as an example to us, received his reward in the form of God's commendation, and it came whilst he was alive. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. It happened when he offered the sacrifice, when he was alive. Whenever we bring some sort of sacrifice to God, we receive his commendation. 
God commending him by accepting his gifts. So it was through Abel's sacrifice that he was commended as righteous. And God commended him at the time that he made the sacrifice by accepting his gifts. Notice also that it was when Enoch was alive on earth that he was commended as having pleased God. Can you see that in chapter 5 there, uh, verse 5b? Um, it says, now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So at the end of chapter 10, the writer has exhorted us to be obedient to God even when it puts us under pressure, even when it puts us in the line of fire, even when it means that we need to endure suffering. And we must put our confidence in God. Why? Because we know that we will receive a reward in the present. God's commendation. That great reward as being righteous and pleasing to him. But now somebody's probably saying, well, tell me a little bit more about this, Ian. Because I'm not convinced that this is something to get really excited about. This righteousness of God. This fact that we're pleasing to God. Is that really enough of a reward? And it clearly isn't for preachers of the prosperity gospel. Because they're saying that we need to have a reward that is far more tangible, far more like stake in the plate, stake in the plate in this life. So let's just have a look at this reward in more detail. First of all, the righteous aspect of it. Abel was commanded, we're told there in verse 4, um, because his sacrifice was more acceptable than Cain's. But you're probably wondering, well, you know, what's this all about? Sacrifice? Why was Abel's sacrifice more acceptable? Who were Cain and Abel? Maybe you're in that place, you don't know who Cain and Abel were. There's clearly some backstory here that we need to have a look at, and so that's what we're going to do. So Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve. And before they were born, there was a time when their parents were righteous. There was nothing between them and God, nothing to obstruct their relationship with God, nothing to prevent them from coming into the presence of God. But when they rebelled, Adam and Eve lost that right standing that they had with God, and so did all their unborn children. And so you can just imagine what it was like for Abel growing up. He could feel this distance between him and God, and he could feel it acutely. And in the words of verse 6, he wanted to draw near to God, those who want to draw near to God. And perhaps Adam and Eve had actually told him what it was like to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the evening. And he just longed for that. And so he decided to draw near to God by the only way that he knew how, which is by offering a sacrifice to God and trusting that God would reward his seeking. Isn't that what it says in verse 6? Those who approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And yet he knew that nothing that he could offer would actually put him right with God. But nevertheless, he had faith. He had faith to believe that if he drew near to God in the only way that he knew how, in, in an inadequate way, that God would somehow pay the price and put things right, because Abel knew that he couldn't. Cain's sacrifice, on the other hand, wasn't accompanied by that same internal attitude, that desire 
to come into the presence of God. I don't think he cared about being put right with God because he was a carnal man. I don't think that he actually wanted to draw near to God. And I think that he saw his sacrifice as being some sort of exchange, some sort of currency that was actually good enough to earn the favor of God. And sometimes we're a bit like that, aren't we? We think that if I do this or I do that, God should treat me in a certain way. God should make things go well for me. And then when he doesn't, we get upset. But the real reason why we approach God is because we want to know him as a person. It's, it's not wanting him to be a powerful assistant who's there to make life work for us. So this week, telling you a little bit more about commendations, about recommendations, I wrote a reference for someone. In other words, a, a recommendation. And in effect, in effect, what I was saying is that this person who you don't know, writing to the people in the letter, this person that you don't know, I know them. And they are in right standing with me because they're a person of integrity. They're a person of honesty, a person of their word. And I also happen to know, because I know this person better than you do, that they're in right standing with their family. Their family is at peace because this person is in right standing with the family. He's in right standing with our community. The people who know him well like him and respect him. So what I was saying is that this man is, is righteous with me. He's in right standing with me. He's in right standing with his family. He's in right standing with his community. And because I've commended him as righteous, I think you should trust him as I do, even though you don't know him in the same way that I do. Folks, how would it change your life? How would it change things on a Monday morning if you knew that God commends you as being in right standing with him? Wouldn't that bring a tremendous confidence? Wouldn't that bring a tremendous relief? And of course, this is what, what the writer's been talking about since the start of the letter. He's been talking about the fact that the way we can be put into right standing with God is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the only way that we can come to God. And when we put our faith in Him, when we trust Him, we are put in right standing with Him. It's a beautiful thing to know that we're in right standing with God. It means that we can walk into His presence. There's nothing to prevent us from coming. And remember that His throne, we've learned this earlier on in Hebrews, is described as a throne of grace. What does that mean? It means that the throne on which He sits is characterized by grace. What is grace? It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Because you are in right standing with God, every day of your life, you can walk into the presence of God and avail yourself of the grace that He has for you. Isn't that a tremendous reward? I don't know about you, but I often feel inadequate for the tasks that I have to perform in life. I often feel like there's stuff that's beyond my control. I hang up a lot of stuff, I think, in Zimbabwe that's beyond my control. But I, I just come to God and I say, that doesn't matter. Because I'm in right standing with you, and I'm handing all of these things over to you. I'm asking you to control the things that I can't. And in doing that, I'm pleasing God. Isn't that beautiful? 
we are in right standing with God. But not only does faith in him commend us as righteous, it also rewards us with the commendation of God's pleasure. And this is something that I, I love so much. So have a look at verse 5 there. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Who was this guy, Enoch? Well, he was a close descendant of Adam. He lived before the flood. Um, and he was similar in faith to Abel. He was actually taken to God, uh, taken into heaven alive. But that wasn't his only reward. Because it says there, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. In other words, while he was still alive, he received this commendation, which we can receive too, that we are pleasing to God. Genesis 5.21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Uh, that took quite a long time, didn't it? Um, then in verse 22, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. He continued to live for another 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And uh, the maths is correct, I did check. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So do you see that that phrase, Enoch walked with God, is repeated twice? What does it mean? Obviously the Bible is emphasizing that because it's been repeated. That's the way the Bible emphasizes things that are important. But what does it mean to walk with God? It means to be in constant fellowship and relationship with God throughout the course of your life. Every day, everything that you're doing, you're doing it in an awareness of God's presence, in fellowship with God, chatting to Him, bringing things before Him, asking Him about things, asking for Him for help. How would that change your life, folks? If you knew that simply doing that, because it was walking with God that pleased God. Folks, we don't, we don't need to do incredibly amazing things. We just need to enjoy fellowship with God on a daily basis. When we first wake up in the morning, just greet Him and say good morning to Him. Say thanks so much that I can climb out of bed and uh, walk down to the, to the bathroom where there's running water in some cases. <laughs> but we've got so much to give thanks to God for. And just doing that, just the fact that we're acknowledging that this God who we can't see exists... And walking with him is pleasing to God. So pleasing. So we've seen that the great reward the writer has in mind is this commendation of God. And we can experience it in this life. And God may commend us um, as righteous and pleasing. But the question is, how do we actually receive this reward? How do we receive God's commendation? And that's the next point. Do we receive God's commendation through faith. So let's have a look at that. Verse 1. It is through faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, by faith, the people of old 
receive the accommodation. So if we want to receive the accommodation of God, then we need to have faith. And then verse 6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Pleasing God is part of his commendation. Without faith, we can't please him. If you want God's commendation, then you need to have faith. You can't earn it in any other way. Because in actual fact, you can't earn God's commendation. It's got to be granted to you. And it comes as a gift, granted as a gift. It comes through faith. But let's just have a look at the nature of the faith in some more detail. This faith is a confidence and a conviction expressed in action. A confidence and a conviction expressed in action. Faith is an assurance or confidence of things hoped for. We haven't received what we've hoped for yet, have we? And yet we're confident that we are going to receive it. For example, Jesus has actually promised us pie in the sky, in the by and by, as Trevor was talking about. And faith means that we're confident that he's going to give it to us. Even if what we see going on on the earth or the experiences that we are going through seems like God is withholding something from us, we know that ultimately we are confident, we are assured of what is to come. And remember, of course, we can do that because our assurance, our hope, is based on the promise of God. And God is a dependable God. He is someone we can put our faith and our trust in. And then faith is also the conviction of things not seen. And, and he gives us an, an example in verse eight, uh, verse 3. He says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So you and I have never seen God. And nor did we see, let alone hear, his word as he created the universe. That happened way before our time. So it takes belief, doesn't it, to believe in the unseen, to understand that God is the creator of everything and that it all came from the sound of his voice, from his word, which we've never even heard. And you might say, well, that's blind faith. But actually, it isn't blind faith. Because if we look at the universe around us, if we look at God's creation, everything is evidence for us that there is an unseen God. Isn't that right? When we look around, when we look at the incredible complexity of the human body, the optic nerve, for example, which I believe starts growing at one end from the eye and then at, from the other end from the brain, and every single one of those nerves needs to connect with its counterpart, otherwise you're not going to be able to see. And it miraculously happens. We can either look at that and say, wow, isn't evolution amazing? Or we can look at that and say, wow, isn't God amazing? So it's not like this faith is a totally blind faith, but it does require being able to see what cannot be seen. Then there's another example of faith as the conviction of things not seen and the conviction of confidence of things hoped for in verse 7. Let's have a look at verse 7 there. I don't know if we fully grasp how remarkable it was for Noah to build this massive boat. Because the way the Bible describes it excuse me, <coughs> is that the earth was very different at that stage. 
in the sense that all the terrestrial water was either bound up in the atmosphere, and so it provided this amazing protective blanket, if you like, for the earth. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I think people lived so long at that time, is that, that the, 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 the whole way things that, or the environment that God had set up was just so much better for human beings. So there was this vast amount of water in the atmosphere, and then there was a vast amount of water under the ground as well. And when you read the account of the flood, it says that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, non-stop. Can you imagine how much water that was? And it says that the waters of the deep were released and they came welling up. So before all of that happened, there wasn't anywhere on earth a body of water big enough in which to launch a boat. And yet God said to Noah, you need to, you need to make a boat. You need to prepare this boat because I'm going to destroy the earth. And the only way to get saved is to submit yourself to my rescue plan, which is that you're going to build this ark. Significantly, when the water came and it started to rise up and the ark started to float, it says that the Lord closed the door of the ark. So... This is symbolic. It's pointing towards the fact that one day judgment is coming in a similar way and that if we're not submitted to God's salvation plan in Jesus Christ, we're going to be like that ark where only those who have submitted and believed are safe. The rest are outside and the Lord has closed the door. It's a bit like the Lord saying, when I return, then it's going to be too late after that. So he believed. He, he believed in the unseen. He believed in this God that he hadn't seen. He believed in water that hadn't arrived yet. And he put his faith and his trust in God's salvation plan so that he and his family would be saved. And notice three things. First of all, Noah's faith shaped his actions. Folks, if we believe in an unseen world that has far more significance than what we can see, then that needs to be reflected in our actions. The second thing, notice that he condemned the world in the sense that he showed that it was possible to have a relationship with the invisible God, to hear from God about his salvation plan, and to submit to that plan. And therefore he made it just for God to destroy those who hadn't listened. So it's a bit like if um, someone in the congregation, maybe Gavin, has asked to set up a system to save people from floating over the Victoria Falls. And so he puts up all sorts of warning signs and then he puts a rope across the river and he has someone standing on the side so that people floating along and the person on the side is shouting, grab onto the rope. They've already seen the signs. Um, they miss that rope. They go to the next one grab onto the rope, the falls are coming. You know, that would justify Gavin's system if people got saved by it. And it would mean that he wasn't unfair or unjust or incompetent if some people went past and ended up going over the falls. It was simply because they rebelled, they disobeyed. They didn't grasp through faith what was incredibly obvious to them. 
So he condemned the world. And then, like Abel, he was also commended as righteous because he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's what it says in the verse there. So I just want to go back to my, my grandpa. Um, let's just see why he was uncomfortable with the commendations of men. So we find him now on his deathbed. He's surrounded by my gran, my dad, and my mum. The three of them were there. And as he died, my grandfather repeated the same phrase three times. He just looked up above the others, um, his family that was around him. He just looked up and he said, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just like that. Very, very clear expression of thanks to the Lord. And so I asked myself, why did, he, why did he say that? And I think it's because my grandfather had come to realize that he was uncomfortable with the commendation of man because it was so seductive. And he'd received a lot of amazing commendations in his life. But he knew that real joy is in the commendation of God. And he lived his life to please God. Through faith, Grandpa was confident that he had been commended by God as righteous. And he, he grew to love those rewards, that sense that God was pleased with him every day. He walked with God. He lived for God. But all of those things were unseen. And then as he died, I believe that he could see the Lord holding out his arms to lift my grandpa into heaven. He could hear Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Because finally, the unseen was seen. I love the words of this hymn here. It says, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you that every person here can receive your commendation even now, right, right in this moment. We thank you that as we put our faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we receive your righteousness. We are commended as righteousness, as righteous. And thank you that every time we put our faith in you, every time our actions show that we believe in an unseen God, that we are pleasing you. Father, I thank you for every person who's come here this morning believing that you exist and that you reward those that earnestly seek you because it pleases you. Thank you for every person that's done that. And Father, I also just want to pray that you would help us in our week, daily week, just to, to walk in an awareness of you. Help us to live our lives um, with you and in fellowship with you because that will bring so much joy and so much pleasure to your heart. And that's the commendation that we want. Father, I thank you that anything else that we can seek in life will let us down, but, but, but your pleasure in us 
is the thing that we hunger for. And Father, we thank you that it's a goal that we can actually achieve because it's within our control. We can, we can just say, I'm going to do this to please you, Father God. And even if we don't do it perfectly, that doesn't matter because we're covered by the blood of Christ and our, our desire is to please you. And in the process, we're expressing faith in you and that's pleasing to you as well. Father, we thank you for these things and we commit ourselves to you. Uh, as we go into the week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.